I think we have done the book of Esther in three weeks. Is that correct, everybody? Well, you don't care. I think we've done it in three weeks. I think that is somewhat impressive for me. I just want to throw that out there. I have a tendency to take my time sometimes with this. I was patting myself on the back today, and obviously that's all that matters is I was patting myself on the back today. So there you go. Thank you. Yep. My God is not a sarcastic God. So Esther, chapter 8. Now just a little bit of background here if you haven't been with us. This is, this is just quite the book. And I wanted these, one of these books that we've talked about many times before, it would be wonderful if we could just sit down in one setting and do the entire story. Because when we break it up, we break up so much of the continuity of it. And what we have seen here in the first two chapters is King Azarius there replaced his queen. Esther miraculously becomes queen. She's a Jew, but she's a secret Jew. And then we're introduced to Haman who hates the Jews. And he gets a decree around that he's going to kill all the Jews here at the end of the year. And then Esther boldly goes before the king and proclaims that she's a Jew. Haman is then hanged. And it's just this wonderful story. And if you're picking it up here at the end, it's hard to put all these pieces together. And I hope that you'll take the time to go back and read it because it reads so quickly. And it just reads like this wonderful story. So where we left off last week is Haman was killed. The orchestrator of wanting to see the Jews destroyed. He was then killed. And now we're left with this situation going on. A few months from now, the Jews are supposed to be attacked and destroyed. That's what Haman's decree was that the king signed. So what's going to happen in these final chapters here? And now all the information is out. Esther is a Jew. Mordecai is a Jew. All these things that God has been doing behind the scenes are now coming to light. Please remember our themes in the book of Esther. That God is moving puzzle pieces behind the scenes that we do not see nor understand sometimes. And he's called us to walk in faith and to trust that. And number two, God raises up people at certain times and certain places to do certain things. Our key verse has been Esther 4.14. If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. God ordained this. That this country girl Jew becomes queen that can influence the king to save the Jewish race. This is God moving and working behind the scenes. So with that reminder, let's pray one more time to get into this. Lord, as always, you taught it. You wrote it. Lord, we just want to listen. Let your Holy Spirit lead and guide and help us to take these points and really apply it, Lord, and what it looks like for us. And not just to talk about it, but to live it. To not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And we say thank you in your name. Amen. So we leave, left off at the end of chapter 7 with Haman being killed. So verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. On that day, King Azarias gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, verse 1 of chapter 8, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told her how he was related to her. Remember, Mordecai and Esther are cousins, and Mordecai has been a father figure in Esther's life, raising her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. She's saying, can you, can you stop this? At the end of the year here, there's a day, an open day, that you have decreed that the Jews can be killed and attacked and plundered, and people are lining up and excited to do this. I, I am a Jew. Please do something about this. 
Now, I want to make a couple points here real quick. Please note, Haman is defeated. He's dead. But even though he's dead and defeated, he is still affecting things. It reminds me a lot of Satan. Satan is defeated, but he still affects things. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, Satan lost all power. That's why Jesus could say from the cross, it is finished. I don't know about you, but when I was in Sunday school as a kid, I always equated Jesus and Satan as almost these powerful equals and just battling each other out. And sometimes Jesus would get the upper hand and sometimes Satan would get the upper hand. And then when I really got saved and really started understanding who Jesus is, and I realized, wait a second, Jesus is God of creation. Satan is created. There is no comparison. But the thing is, even though Satan is defeated, we know how it ends. We can go read the book of Revelation. We know that death has been defeated. We know it is finished. He still has a lot of power in what's going on. Haman is a man that ceases to exist, but he's still affecting things. Keep that in the back of your mind right there. Please note at this time, my personal opinion, I will warn one more time, my personal opinion, I believe that if Esther would not do anything and this assault on the Jews would happen like it was supposed to, I do believe that Esther would probably be safe. She's in the king's palace. She is the queen. Mordecai would probably be safe. He is now basically second in charge of the kingdom. And if you take a look at it, in verse 1, they've been given the house of Haman. They now live in Haman's house. This is where they will reside. They are the queen and the second in charge of the kingdom. They would probably be safe. But please note she's imploring the king for help. Even though she's probably safe. Why? Because it's not about you being safe. It's about the eternal mindedness of everything. Can you go with me to Numbers please? Numbers 32. I've been doing a lot of reading in the Old Testament. Read read the book of... um, Joshua, and I'm getting into Judges. And it's just a fascinating reading of what was happening back during this time. And a little bit of background that's going on here in Numbers chapter 32 is they are getting ready to settle into the promised land, the land of Canaan. There's these tribes, Reuben and Gad and one of the sons of Joseph. They decide that they want to settle east of the Jordan. If you can look at the back of your Bible sometime and just envision this map, the Jordan River is kind of cutting it right there. And so God had given them the promised land, basically the stuff between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. So what happened is these tribes came to this land, and they they fell in love with this land. So what happens in verse 1 of Numbers 32? Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazir and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a great place for livestock. So they see this area on the other side of the Jordan, which you know really isn't theirs yet. And they stop and say, this is great land. Verse 5, therefore they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. We don't want to go into the promised land. Now, that's a whole other teaching within and of itself. And if you study out what happens to Reuben, and you study out what happens to Gad, and you study out what happens to the son of Joseph with this, this is really a bad choice. A really a bad choice. They should have stayed in the promised land, stayed in the safety with the rest of the Jews, but they chose not to. That's a different teaching for a different day. They said, can we have this land right here? Let's see what happens. Verse 6. Moses said to the children of Gad and the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? 
Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. And so then Moses goes on this teaching basically saying, what are you guys doing? We've been given this land. This is the land we're supposed to have. You're going to sit here and just take it and do nothing? Nothing. What's going to happen then, verse 15? If you turn away from following him, meaning the Lord, he will once again leave them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. Then they came near to him. So now they come back to Moses and say, we will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on the eastern side of the Jordan. Then Moses said to them, if you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for the war and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Build cities for your little ones, folds for your sheep and do what is proceeded out of your mouth. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spoke to Moses, saying, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, and all of our livestock will be there in the cities of Gilead. But your servants will cross over every man armed from war before the Lord to battle, just as my Lord says. Now, that's a lot of reading to get to this point. They said, here's the deal. We'll take this land. We'll be safe in this land. But we're going to do this. It's not about us being safe. We will fulfill our responsibilities. We will fulfill our duties. And we will go battle. We will go battle for you to gain the land that you're supposed to gain. And we will leave our sheep here. We'll leave our families here. But we're still going to go out to war. Now let's bring this back now to Esther. I really do believe Esther probably would have been safe as the queen. I do believe Mordecai probably would have been safe as second in command. But they were willing to put their lives on the line for others and to stop and say it's not about us being safe. It's about making sure all the Jews are safe. The Reubenites and the Gadiites could have stopped and said, nope, we'll take the land. Hey, you guys go get it yourself. They said, no, it's about everybody getting their fair share. We're willing to go fight. Now bring this into practical application for us. Guys, we're really comfortable here. We're really safe. If I ever run into somebody here and they start talking about persecution, yes, there is persecution, but it pales in comparison to persecution that's happening throughout the world. When we talk about being persecuted for our faith here in Northwest Ohio, it really is on a very light term. We can go to the Christian bookstore and have literally ten different translations of a Bible to choose from. We have the internet that we can get online and have Greek and Hebrew and whatever we want. We are meeting here in a church building openly, safely, proclaiming Jesus Christ. We have air conditioning. We have heat. We have lights. We have a group at the prayer booth right now at the Henry County Fair that are publicly proclaiming Jesus Christ. We get to go into a prison next month and publicly proclaim Jesus Christ. We have so much that we can do. We have to let go of the mindset of making sure that we're safe, we're comfortable, whatever, because there's so many people out there that don't know the truth. And so therefore, we have it so easy right here. We're on the east side of the Jordan. We're Mordecai and and, uh, Esther in the house. We're safe. But there's so many people that don't know the Lord. There's so much ministry that could be done. We have to be willing to sometimes step out of our safety and our comfortability and say, Lord, I'm going to go to battle on the other side of the river because there's people that need my help. 
Lord, I'm going to step out of my home of safety and realize I'm going to go spread the gospel. Please realize the purpose of Christianity is not to get saved and keep yourself as safe as comfortable as you can until either Jesus' return or death. The purpose of Christianity is to see souls get saved and to go out there and be a light and a witness in all that we say and all that we do. Please prayerfully consider sometimes stepping out of your comfort zone. And saying, Lord, if there's a ministry opportunity that does not really click with me, Lord, I'm going to go try it because I think you're leading me. I tell you, the, the most joy I have is I, when I usually step out of my comfort zone and realize, wow, Lord, this is such an exciting time to truly trust in you. And just trust that you're going to move and work in ways I can never imagine. And I just encourage you, cross the river sometimes, step out of the home a little bit, and realize that we need to go be a light and a witness in all that we do and all that we say. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about anything here before we kind of move on here and see what happens with the king and Esther? All right, let's see what happens then. So now Esther comes to the king, falls down, says, Will you please do something about this? Verse 4, And the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther. Remember, that shows that he's accepting her. So Esther rose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king... If I found favor in his sight, this thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes. Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamathiah, the Agiite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's providences. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Do something, king. You can change this. Verse 7. Then king Azarias said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay hands on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. See, here's one of the rules of the Medes and Persians. And you'll see this a little bit in the book of Esther. You'll see it in the book of Daniel. The Medes and Persians had a rule that whatever law was made, you can't revoke that law. So they can't go revoke the law to stop this, but they can create a new law to do something else. And so this is the wisdom that they have that they're going to do. Now, just for a fun tidbit of information, Esther 8, verse 9, is the longest verse in the Bible. I just want to throw that out there at you. So if you ever want to make a deal with your kids and say, if you guys just memorize one verse, one verse, I'll give you candy. Sure, Dad, whatever verse it is. It just happens to be Esther 8, verse 9. And this is Esther 8, verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at the time in the third month, which is in the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes, the providences from India to Ethiopia, 127 providences, all to every providence, its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews and their own script and language. That is one verse right there. I just want to throw that out there for you. So basically what they do is this. They make this decree. And this decree basically says this, verse 11. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who are in every city to gather together and protect their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. So they make a new law. Jews, you can defend yourself. Now this is kind of a big deal. The Jews are a conquered people you got to remember, they were conquered by Babylon and brought in as slaves. Well, the Medes and Persians have come in and conquered the Babylonians. So now they are now under another conquered nation. They don't have rights. They don't have privileges. And so it's just a huge deal that they actually have the right to protect themselves. Now, the fascinating thing about this is, this is still months in advance. So now they have months to prepare themselves. And it's all going to happen, verse 12, on the 13th day of the 12th month. 
So they write this decree, verse 13, and they send it out to everybody. Verse 14, they put it on the horses and they send it out. And Mordecai is now honored for what he is doing. Remember, if you go back a few chapters, he's the one that discovered the plot to kill the king. So you see God moving all these puzzle pieces together. So now, verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now, There's so much in those verses. And let me just throw some points out there. And you just prayerfully consider how it affects you. Please note verse 16. Light, gladness, joy, honor. Verse 17. Joy, gladness, feast, holiday. They're celebrating before the battle even starts. Okay. Here's the problem that we have a lot of time as Christians. We celebrate after we get the good results from the doctor. We have joy when everything works out. We have peace and gladness and we want to proclaim God's goodness when it all comes together. I want to encourage you to become a body of believers that has joy even before you know what the doctor is going to say. I want to encourage you to be a group of believers that even in the dark times where you don't know whether it's going to work out, you can still honestly say, I trust the Lord. The Bible tells us to glory in tribulation. There's no way to get around that verse. Glory in the difficult times that are going to grow you. Glory and joy in the midst of the battle. Glory and joy before the results come. Don't be the believer that rejoices when it all works out. Oh, God is good. I knew he was good. I knew he would come through. Okay, he's good even if the results don't come back the way you want. He, he, he's still good even if it doesn't happen the way you want. And what I see a lot of times in believers, myself included, is this, oh Lord, I praise you at the end. Let's learn to praise him at the beginning. Now here's the problem with it. We get more attention before the battle happens, before the results, for making a big deal out of it. I see this a lot. This worry, this fear, this anxiety in the body of Christ comes around and we're praying for you. And I know you're going through such a difficult time. I can't even imagine how difficult it is. We're praying. What would happen if you'd come up and just in the difficult time say, Hey, here's the situation. I don't know what's going to happen. But I want to publicly proclaim right now God is good. So when somebody comes up to you and says, Oh, I'm so sorry for you. Don't be sorry for me. I'm born again and saved. I'm going to heaven. I appreciate some prayer for strength. I appreciate some prayer to be a witness in this difficult time. Because take a look what happens at the end of uh, verse 17. Then many of the people of the land became Jews. Because fear of the Jews fell upon them. They saw how the Jews reacted. And said, that's something I want. That's fascinating to me. The people I respect the most, and dare I use this word, I am impressed with the most spiritually, are the ones in the midst of the trial and tribulation that are not faking it. And they're just saying, hey, listen, the Lord's in control of this. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm just praising him for what he's going to do. And I want this to be a light and a witness and always say and do. Keep your hand here. Can you go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1? 1 Peter 1. I want you to really think about what these verses are saying as we read through this and really stop and say, okay, Lord, can I really apply this to my life? 1 Peter 1, verse 6. 
In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay, Peter's saying you still rejoice. Now, but note the definition here of what he's trying to tell you. First off, it's only a little while. It's only a little while. Now, some of you may be saying this isn't a little while. This has been going on for weeks. This has been going on for months, years, decades. This is something I'm going to have the rest of my life. Agreed. It's a little while in the whole scheme of eternity. That's what you got to do. we got to quit looking at the here and now and look towards eternity. So it's only a little while. If need be, God may look down on you and say, James, I need you to go through this because you need to be refined. You need to get rid of some of this stuff. You have been grieved by various trials. Grieved distressed, bothered. It is not fun. It is not exciting. A little catchphrase I've been using lately is this. God wants me to have joy in all things. That does not mean I enjoy all things. And I think it's important to understand the difference. I will have joy in all things, but it doesn't mean I enjoy it. And it's called a trial. So why in the world is this great God of love Allowing trials and tribulations, verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You don't know how valuable the metal is until you put it in the fire. You don't know how strong your faith is until you go through some fire. You don't. And I think what happens a lot of times as believers, when the fires of life start nipping at us a little bit, we start whining and complaining, and we hear things like this. Oh, I just it's so difficult. It's so such a trouble. I remember one time I had a person call me up, and they just got their kicks off of the difficulties they were going through, and they would say, I bet you've never had anybody as bad as me. And they wanted that pat on the back for the work. You don't know anybody, anybody that's ever as bad as me. And I said, yes, I do. And they said, who? And I said, Job. I said, I never met him personally, but I read about him. He had it pretty rough. Kind of ended the conversation. But the point is that sometimes we get excited almost over the attention we get. It's not about that. It's about, Lord, you're using this to grow me and you. I mean, look at the rest of this. Verse 8. Whom having not seen you love, though you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy and expressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Right there, that's what it comes down to, is the salvation of your souls. That does not mean that you're not allowed to come up for prayer and say, James, I want to let you know I'm really struggling. You are struggling. Let's pray for you. The Bible says you're grieved by various trials. The Bible says you're distressed. Let's pray for you. But it's my job as a pastor and a shepherd is to get your eyes off the trial and get your eyes back on Jesus. And I would hope that you guys would do that for me. If there's ever something so difficult I was going through, that you would help me get my eyes back on where it's supposed to be. And I look here in the book of Esther, and I see them rejoicing. And the battle hasn't even happened yet. I see them with gladness and joy. They know a war is coming. And I see people, for lack of a better word, getting saved because they see how the Jews are reacting. What an amazing witness and testimony that is. What an amazing witness and testimony that is. So now Esther chapter 9. Fast forward a few months. Now in the 12th month, that is in the month of Adair, on the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. Please stop right there and just think. 
Put yourself in the position of a Jew. The next day, people have the legal right to kill you. To kill your spouse, to kill your children, and to take whatever they want from you. They have the legal right to do it. How are you going to sleep that night before? Wouldn't you probably be praying a whole awful lot? Probably be fasting a whole awful lot? Do you think you'd go to bed that night worrying about the laundry, the dishes, the weeds in the garden, that the yard needs mowed? No, because all of a sudden when you go through something like that, eternity matters more than anything. And sometimes I believe that's the reason why the Lord allows these trials and tribulations to come into our life. Because it's during that time that eternity starts to matter before anything else. And what I see here is this group coming together as one. As one. And what you see here is these Jews would come together as one. So what happens is the Jews all get together as one group. They got together in the cities. Did you remember reading that in chapter 8? That the Jews would band together during this difficult time. That reminds me a lot of the book of Acts, guys. That we're supposed to come together as one accord. And as many of you know, we just started Acts on Sunday. And we're really praying and stopping and seeing. There's a lot of different things that the Lord is giving us out here as a church. What's the vision he's given us? As we mentioned here before, and I'm going to mention to the Wednesday night group as well. So that way you guys can be in prayer about this as well. You know, Richard's retiring next year. So what does that mean for us? Do we prayerfully replace Richard with somebody else? Do we stop and say, okay, Lord, let's see if we can go on on without Rich. And maybe we step up and say, okay, body of Christ, maybe we can do this without hiring another person. And so there's four different people using their gifts in the areas that they're called. And that money that is saved and that finances, it can be maybe focused on missions. It can be focused on outreach. We're prayerfully consider whether we need to add on some Sunday school classrooms in the back. We're very blessed with, with kids and youth. So we're praying, Lord, is that where you want us to use the finances there as well? There's also a group that we've been doing these small group studies now for the last few years. And um, there's a group over in Signet that wants a Bible study. They've been wanting an established church over there for years. And we've been doing small group studies over there, planting seeds. And it looks like the time is coming to maybe do something. And our view in church planting has always been this. We never need to go into an established area where there's already good churches. If there's already good churches, why are we planting another church? We're not in the competition business. We're not trying to reproduce who we are. Let's just proclaim the gospel. So if there's an area over there that needs it, then we want to go over there and represent it. We'd appreciate prayer for those things. And this is part of that one accord coming together as one body of Christ. And that's really difficult. Because we're so used to living our lives and just showing up and putting on a happy face and faking it for a while. And we put up walls and spiritual walls and we really don't become one. And I don't want to get into the whole Sunday stuff because that's what we're getting into here on Sundays. But you see these Jews, according to chapter 8, they all banded together. Would that not make sense? You are the minority. You are the the conquered nation. So here you are in this town that you know there's a green light coming where people would be able to kill you. Would you not gather as many of yourselves together as possible to protect themselves? Take a look at verse 11 of chapter 8. Remind yourself of this. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives. To destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, to plunder their possessions. Can you imagine 
being back at that time, and you're gathering together with all your Jewish brothers and sisters, and you got this one family that says, we're going to do it by ourselves. Would you not be, be pleading with them, trying to convince them this is, this is silly? Come into our area. There's safety in numbers. This is what we're supposed to do. Nope, we're good. We're going to do it all on our own. The problem is the same thing still happens today spiritually. That you see families or individuals that we're just going to do it on our own. We're good. We appreciate the church. We appreciate the idea of the body of Christ. We get it. God bless you. But we're just going to do it solo. It says in the book of Isaiah, Woe to him who warms himself by the fire alone. There's a danger in that. And so what happens is you see some of these families like, Well, how are they doing? Well, I think they're doing good. I mean, they talk about the devotions they're doing. They're talking about, you know, things that the Lord's led. But there's no accountability. There's no one cord. There's no fellowship. There's no nothing. We really don't know what's going on. We see a little bit of the surface. God has designed us and he has called us sheep to be together. But what happens is a lot of times as believers, we do everything we can to keep a separation. Sheep are dumb animals. Sheep are difficult animals. And it's really true in the body of Christ. Sometimes it's easier to be alone and separate, but the Lord says, no, band together for safety. So here we go. They band together on that day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. The opposite occurred. And that time the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. They fought back. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Azarias to lay hands on those who sought their harm and no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all the people. They were mighty together as one. I can't stress this to you enough. God has designed you to be part of the group. If you believe that you're going to be able to do it okay on your own or you think you're going to be able to do it okay with just you and your spouse and kids, that is an arrogance and a pride that's going to hurt you spiritually. God has called you to be open and one with the body of Christ. So what happens in verse 5? This, the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and they did what pleased with those who hated them. And in Shusan the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And it lists everything else that happens here. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel and 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's providences? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your future request? It shall be done. So he goes to Esther and says, okay, what would you like to do? You guys survived. You guys won, if you will. Esther, what are you going to do? Sweet, beautiful Esther. Verse 13. Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shusan to do again tomorrow, according to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Beautiful, sweet Esther. (laughs) Think about how the world or how the Bible presents Esther. Here's Esther doing a mafia hit. I want the ten sons of Haman killed and hung. And I want another day that we can go out and kill our enemies. Verse 14. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shusan and they hanged Haman's sons. And the Jews who were in Shusan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Shusan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. You will see that repeated numerous times. This was not vengeful. This was not to gain money. This was to protect. Verse 16, the remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together, protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. 
This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th month they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. God is a God of love, but please never forget that God is also a God that likes to clean house every now and then. I've heard it been said many times before, some straightforward, some humorous, etc. We like to focus on the flood. We love telling the story of the flood. And we always like to focus on the eight people in the ark and the animals. We ignore the fact of how many other millions or billions of people drowned. God does not have a problem cleaning house. If he believes that people are a threat to his people, he will do whatever he can to protect them. Study out the book of Revelation. God will supernaturally step in to protect the Jews. You don't ever have to worry about Israel. They will be protected because God will always protect them. What you see, though, happening right now is this is a theme that is going on. Remember last week we talked about Agiite, Haman the Agiite, and how Saul was supposed to take out all the Agiites, and he didn't. His disobedience led to problems centuries later. I've been, like I said, I've been reading a lot in Joshua and in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges starts out with God basically saying, Listen, Israel, you didn't do what I asked you to do. I asked you to take out all these towns. And since you did not do it, they creep back into your lives and cause problems. So we take a look at Esther and we think, Boy, that's cold-hearted. No, Esther's taking care of the problem. Taking care of it. It's like going up and knocking down the wasp nest. Get the whole thing out. Take care of everything. So therefore, there's not an issue. How does that apply to us today? If there is a sin in your life, holy hatred of it. Get rid of the whole thing. Don't do this half-hearted little, I probably need to do better about it. Or, you know, I probably need to stop. You know, I'm not looking at it as much as I used to. I'm not drinking as much as I used to. I'm not, not, no. Stop all of it. Destroy it. Because when you allow it to stay there, it just keeps coming back. Read Joshua. Read Judges. Read it. It just keeps coming back. Esther knew enough to say, if we don't knock this problem out completely now, it's going to pop back up again. So we need to take out all the enemies of the Jews. That's exactly what happened. What now takes us to the Feast of Purim, which still is celebrated today. It usually happens in the, in the beginning, middle of maybe March. It's kind of an interesting feast. It's not one of the major feasts. If you look at the Jewish major feast, that's Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. Those were the Jews had to go to Jerusalem. This would be considered one of maybe the minor feasts, if you will. But it's highly celebrated, and it still happens today. What they do is they read the book of Esther, and they read it in Hebrew. And they will eat, and they will drink, and they will eat and drink a lot. They will give out gifts to people. They will dress up in costumes. You can dress up as like Esther. You can dress up as Mordecai, as one of the heroes. Or you can dress up as one of the bad guys, like Haman. It's even reached a point now where they will start dressing up as the bad guys of throughout history that have attacked the Jews. They will dress up as Saddam Hussein. They will dress up as Osama bin Laden. They will dress up as these people. If you want to go study out history, please note the power of the Feast of Purim that Hitler said it was not allowed to happen in Poland for the Jews. Because he knew what this feast represented. It's a fascinating thing. And if you want to have some fun with it, go on YouTube, type in Feast of Purim, reading the book of Esther. Because what happens when they read the book of Esther and the Feast of Purim, now first off, they're reading it in Hebrew, so please note that. But every time Mordecai's name is mentioned, people cheer. Every time Haman's name is mentioned, they yell, scream, and boo. 
And this is what they do. And there's some neat videos of them reading it in Hebrew. And, and Haman's name comes up. And they have these noisemakers. And there's kids dressed in costumes. It looks like it's Halloween. But there's nothing evil about it. And they mention Haman's name. And they just everybody goes crazy. They'll go door to door to collect money for the poor. Dressed in costumes. It's this really fascinating feast. And if you want further study, take a look in John chapter 5. Some people believe that uh, that was the Feast of Purim right there that maybe Jesus was involved in. So it's even something that, you know, Jesus may have gotten involved in. So what happens with it? I'm just going to do this kind of quickly here. So they won the battle on the 13th here, 14th, 15th. They rested. They make a day of feasting and gladness. And verse 19, they make it a holiday. So they're now making this holiday. And what are they supposed to do with it? Verse 22, as the days in which the Jews had rest from their enemies is the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy and sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So they start this tradition. And that's what they continue to do. And they still do it to this day here now, you know, thousands of years later. And basically what you have here at the end of chapter 9 is almost a repeat of everything that happened and just kind of a reminder of how everything ends. So verse 32 sums it up. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. And it's called Purim because of verse 26. They called these days Purim after the name Pure, which means Lot. They cast a lot on when this day was going to happen, and that's what happened. And then chapter 10, pretty short little chapter. It just kind of gives you a, a side note of what happens with Mordecai. King Azarius imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Azarius, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people, and speaking peace to all his countrymen. What an amazing story. And it's, please remember, God's moving puzzle pieces behind the scenes. God, even though his name may not be mentioned in the book, is completely, utterly evident of him doing things. You may be in a season right now of where it does not look like God is doing much. He is moving puzzle pieces behind the scenes. Please remember that. Please remember what we learned here today, too. Haman was defeated. Still affected people. Your enemy, Satan, is defeated. It still affects us. Please note that they gathered together as one. One. To battle back. Please prayerfully consider really understanding what it means to be one accord in fellowship in the body of Christ. And as we go through Acts, I hope you will see that, that oneness, what's really supposed to happen with that. You can't force fellowship. You can't force oneness. But what a blessing comes out of it. You see their faith in God in rejoicing before the battle even begins. You see their faith in God in knowing that he's going to see them through. And you see Esther making sure that the enemy is completely, utterly defeated. I hope that if you have something in your life that's nipping at your heels, you're willing to do what Esther did and say, I need to make sure this is taken care of completely. Any final questions, comments, complaints about anything here? Megan. What's that? I didn't hear that last part. The Medes and the Persians? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Jewish faith by, by default is that you're only accepting what we would call the Old Testament. And once you get to the Jewish faith, there's, there's numerous breakdowns of the Jewish faith. You have some Orthodox Jews. You have Jews that are waiting for the Messiah. You have uh, basically um, Jews that are Jews in name only. They don't do anything religious. They're a secular Jew. But yes, they do not accept the New Testament. They still believe the Messiah is coming, and some are still waiting for that. So they would only accept the Old Testament here. John. That would be safe to say, I think, for the vast majority, that they would believe in the concept that there was a Jesus that lived. Um, some would say that they didn't live. That's another story for another day. But, yeah, they would not accept him as the Messiah that they are thinking and waiting for. In fact, the percentage of Jews that are actually waiting for a Messiah is very, very small. Most of the Jews are what we would consider secular Jews. They like their heritage. They like their history. They like the story of being Jew. They like the tradition of the feast. But when it comes to a religious experience with their faith, it's really not there. They'd be mostly secular Jews. The Jews you think of most of the time are probably like Hasidic Jews or Orthodox Jews wearing the certain clothes, a certain hair, etc. Those get a lot more press, get a lot more attention. But the typical Jew is going to be what is considered a secular Jew, and they just like the traditions of being a Jew. Anybody else anything? Somebody's in the back there. Is that crew? Yes. Krista. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, this is something that we don't really study a whole lot about. But if you would go back and read the law, you could become a Jew. In fact, there's a lot of Egyptians that left Egypt when Israel left, and they decided to become Jews in faith. And so there was steps that could happen back during the law where if somebody was a Gentile, they could say, I choose to become Jewish. You know, so often we look at the Old Testament and we think, well, God's only focusing on the Jews. That's all he cared about. If you go back and study Passover, he says, hey, Passover is for anybody. Anybody can come partake of Passover as long as they're willing to proclaim Jehovah as God and be a Jew. So, yes, there were steps given in the law where somebody who would have been a Mede or a Persian or a Babylonian could become Jewish and they would follow these steps to become Jewish. So the main thing for the men, it concerned being circumcised there, as they stepped to say, I'm willing to become a follower of uh, Jehovah. So that's something that happened a lot. They were, they were allowed to become Jews. Anybody else have anything here for Yeah. People can still become Jewish today. Uh, the steps to become Jewish, depending on what you want to become, is a lot less intense than what it was back then. So therefore, let's say that uh, you are a Jewish man and you found a Gentile woman and you wanted to get married, uh, she could easily become a Jew. She'd become a Jew by faith. She'd go through the classes. She would do everything that needs to happen to become Jewish. So yeah, it can still happen today. I mean, it'd be the equivalent of somebody saying they wanted to get married in the Catholic Church and they're not Catholic, so somebody has to go through the steps to become Catholic. It may not mean a whole lot to them. It may just be a hoop that they're jumping through. But yeah, you could become Jewish if you wanted to today. Oh, the Jews have killed the ten sons of Haman. Yes, this is a very interesting point that um, 
Ryan brought up last week, and I'm glad he brought it up privately. The way, um, the way, when you see them being hung from a Mede and Persian perspective, it is not being hung like you think being hung with a rope around your neck. When the Medes and Persians would hang somebody, they would take a stake and drive your body through it. And then your body would be put on display. So what this is probably really saying is that his ten sons have been killed. And Esther is saying, would you go take the bodies and put them on a stake to be displayed? So when you study this out in the original Hebrew, it carries a different connotation than what we think of hanging. It was an awful, horrible way to, to die. So. It does say impaled? Yeah, is that New Living? Yeah. yeah, New Living. Yeah, they did a better job of translating that word rather than just being hung. Because somebody brought up a point last week privately saying, okay, so if these gallows are 70 feet high, the pure physics of trying to hang somebody from 70 feet is pretty difficult to do. But if you look at it as, oh, no, I'm just going to pierce your body and stick it up in the air 70 feet, it's a little bit different. I do not encourage you to do it. If you want to go look at how they impaled them, I had to because I'm teaching you can't, you can't unsee it, folks. I'm just telling you that right now. It was an awful, awful, horrible way, and it made quite the visual. I could Google that, but um, I believe my filter will block that because for, for obvious reasons. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right, hey, this has been a great book. I hope you've been as blessed by it as, as I have. Be in prayer when the Lord's leading us to go next week. Uh, I know it's 8 o'clock. I want us to close with prayer, but I, I really do honestly mean this here. We're, we're called to be one. And in the midst of trials and tribulations, he called the Jews to gather together as one. If you have something that's battling you, if you have something you need prayer for, I highly encourage you to come up here and let's pray together as the body of Christ. I know some of you got to go grab kids. I know some of you got to get going. I get that. I never look at that as, oh, that person left. They didn't want to pray. No, I don't look at that. If you have something you want to pray about, I want you to come up. Let's be one. Let's be the body of Christ. And let's open that up and say, Lord, we're here to grow in that. So if you guys don't mind standing and praying with me. Lord, what a wonderful blessing it's been to study out the book of um, Esther here. Lord, it's one thing to know it, help us now to live it. To walk in faith, to trust that the puzzle pieces are moving behind the scenes. Lord, to be the body of Christ you've called us to be. Uh, prayer for wisdom on what book you want us to go through next and what that looks like. But Lord, we not want to just talk about it, we want to live it. And all we say and do, and we lift this up in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week. God bless.